The process is this, you have to find them, vet them, hire them, and manage them. I always say finding the right GC, you'll never ever make up for that by doing it on your own. My approach that I talk about in the book is to be really open, right? And I think if you do that and you're fair and you're humble and you build the right relationship, it'll pay dividends. I'm a simple guy, right? So I created a system. It's called the three and a half S's. You look at safety, schedule, standards, and the half S is the dollar sign. I always look at the worst case scenario and work backwards. Worst case scenario is you either have your money taken or you end up in court. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Matt, appreciate you being with us, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this because one of the things that I really love about podcasting is sometimes I get to meet people that I would just want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with and really just shoot the breeze and learn from. So this is really cool. So kind of tell everybody, like, where did you start in this business and, and what do you do today? Yeah, yeah. Good question. I appreciate that. Um, you know, my family's been in construction for 102 years is what we can trace it back. And that goes back to Italy. So four generations, you know, my great grandfather, grandfather, father, uncle, and then me. I started first day on the job. I was nine years old, had a lot of energy. My, my dad's like, let him out, let him work with me. My mom's like, no, he's too young. And then I stayed home one summer and she's like, take him. So that was, that was day one on the job. And, you know, I've been working in construction for my whole childhood, really. I mean, every weekend was with my dad doing bids and, you know, meeting with clients and we used to do waterproofing inspections. So I was the guy trying to find the leak. My dad was spraying the hose. I mean, it's just, it's been a whole, you know, that was really most of my life, to be honest. Very cool. And so you then at, at some point trans, transitioned into doing a lot bigger jobs and that kind of thing. So tell us about that. Yeah. So the transition was, um, you know, when I got a little older, I mean, I was running crews by about 14, 15. Uh, one thing about my dad was he never had a glass ceiling. He's like, look, if you can do it, I don't care how young or old you are. It worked on both sides of the fence. So, you know, I was running crews by about 14, 15. And then, you know, we started having the confidence to do bigger projects. And that was really around, I think I was finishing up. I went to a vocational high school for bricklaying. And right around that time, we had the confidence to take on much bigger projects and it you know, steadily grew from there. So I really want to jump into this 14-year-old manager of crews deal. So how does that even begin to happen? And how do you command the respect of people that are two and three times older than what you are? Yeah. So my dad did something really unique that I didn't quite understand when I was young. So that day one on the job, I was really excited. You know, I would see these photos of these things my dad would build and it was out of stone or concrete and all these amazing, you know, renovations and, you know, and the people's outdoor yards and whatnot. And I show up and my dad's like, all right, son, you ready? And I'm like, yep. And he goes, here you go. And he hands me a trash bag. 
And he's like, everything you see, that's trash. He's like, pick it up. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm the owner's kid. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, I got my little tool belt. I'm like ready to go. And so he started me at the ground up. And so I earned respect for, from the guys at a very, very young age, you know, bringing them a coffee, you know, it, it was never that, right. There was no ego involved. I mean, he stripped that the moment I walked on the job site, he's like, here you go, kid, you're going to learn construction. You're going to learn it the right way. And that's how I built the rapport. And then later it was just a, a team atmosphere, right? It was never like, I'm your boss or I'm the owner's kid. It was, I'm expected to work harder than you. And that won a lot of the guys over. That's super cool. You know, it's one of the things I've got a five-year-old little girl and I can't remember what it was, but she saw a trophy and she's like, daddy, I want a trophy. And, and I'm like, okay, go get a trophy. And she's like, okay, well, you know, will you give me a trophy? It's like, no, like you've got to go and do something that gives you that trophy. So and I, th- I think that's just super cool, man. And I think it's something that's just really lost. Uh, maybe every generation loses a little bit of that, that work ethic and the, the idea that I'm not owed anything. Right. So if you started off with trash bags, I did really the same thing. My father did some building when I was eight, nine years old. And that was the worst thing. And I remember one time he was talking to his wife. They're now estranged, but uh, his wife at the time. And he said, you know, you know, one of the best things about this business of building is you can have 10 or 11 kids and keep them all busy and they can never finish. And here I am. It's just me. And I'm like, this is awful. Like, this is terrible. So that, that's super cool. All right. So you went to a vocational bricklaying high school. So I've never even heard of that. So like, what does that mean? Yeah. So basically what it was, was we had half the year. So every other week was standard education. So we had to have the same state requirements. Um, so we had basically half the time to learn what most high schools had the full year to learn. And then that fill in week. So the every other week outside of that. So your A week and your B week, your B weeks were what they call trade or shop. So mine was masonry. So every other week I'm learning to lay bricks and stone and, you know, manage job sites. And so it was a very interesting dynamic of you had to balance your time. And then for me, I had my dad own, owned the company. So I'm working nights, I'm working weekends, right? I'm in school working. So it was a very interesting dynamic of what hard work looks like. I mean, there was no breaks. I had to stock fireplaces and show up at, you know, 530 at night. And my dad'd be like, all right, pile of bricks are in the front, get them to the back in the basement. And I'm like, okay. So that's super cool. I hope we uh, have more and more of that as time goes on. I mean, trades are doing a lot, lot better than what a lot of college degrees are doing now. And mm-hmm. so that, that would be a really good thing to bring that back. So one of the things that you mentioned was that you guys started off doing like waterproofing jobs and doing smaller construction, but at some point you went and, and started to scale up to bigger jobs. Like, do you remember like that first big job and what did that look like? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, we got into a lot of state and prevailing wage work with my dad, um, you know, when I was younger. And uh, it was definitely a jump because we went from the small family business to doing a lot of the work that big union companies with three or 500 employees were doing. And so it was definitely, you have so much regulation and, and the whole process was different, but you know, it was, and he put me in charge. He's like, he introduced me to the engineer. I'm 17 years old. He's like, all right, Bob, beat so-and-so. This is my son. He's like, he's going to walk you through everything. And then he leaves. And I'm like, okay, this is it. You know, so <laughs> it was a jump for sure. That, that's super cool. So let's talk about construction and management of construction, because I know for the house flipping world, it's really maybe an Achilles heel for a lot of people, because it's like one of the biggest complaints that I hear is, Number one, I can't find deals, but if you do find deals, you can't find the contractors that are reasonably priced to go and do the work that you can really rely on. But it seems like you really have this down to a science. 
So walk us through that. Like, how do we find the people and put them through a process so that at the end we have a really, really good contractor? Yeah, no, I think that's really good. And one just little backstory piece, right? How this all kind of came about was I've been on over 4,000 sales appointments with my dad and then on my own, right? And so over the last 15 years, I've noticed a shift, right? I remember as a kid, my dad, you know, high-fiving the kids of the homeowner and we would like play basketball. And the only time I ever saw my dad drink a beer was when a client brought one out at the end of a job. And so the reason I'm saying this is my childhood was so unique in the sense that home improvement and the relationship between the contractor was so tight. It was friendly. It was enjoyable. It was nice. And over the last 15 years, I've seen this kind of split where it's like there's tension and the good contractors don't want to work with homeowners. And the home- and so that was the inspiration for the book was me reflecting and saying, what happened between me being a kid and obviously owning a construction company here in Los Angeles and this whole dynamic. And so there's some backstory elements like in 2008, when the economy had the issues that did a lot of good contractors in their late fifties, early sixties said, you know what? I'm good. I'm out. Right. A lot of good people left. So there's a lot of things that are happening in the background that I don't know that the average investor or even contractor knows and has thought about. Whereas I was reflecting on this a lot. So the whole concept of the book was how do we bridge the gap, right? The gap or the tension or the fear or the concern that you just referenced. So the first thing I've discovered was that there's a process And when you make it a process with little mini buckets, it simplifies things. So the process is this, you have to find them, vet them, hire them and manage them. So real quick overview, find is where you're building out your list. You're adding people that you're going to call and look and basically vet. Vet is where you're crossing people off the list. And I'll get into the criteria and we can talk as much or as little as you want. Hire is when they present the contract and you need to review it and sign it and manage We'll get into this is the three and a half S's, but it's it's managing that contractor. So part of the issue I saw at the surface level is because most people don't have a system, they tangle everything. They got one person who's got their contract and they're reviewing that and they're, they're calling other people. And it's like all the wires get tangled. It gets really overwhelming. But if you put everything in buckets and you don't move to the next bucket until you've fulfilled the first part, it becomes much easier. Or at least that's what we found when we've you know brought this to people and tested it. Very cool. So let's start at the, the very beginning of the process, which is fund. So one of the things that I was taught is, okay, if you need a contractor, then go to Home Depot or Lowe's at 6 a.m. And those are the guys and give out your business card and get business cards and network there. But I found that to be pretty abrasive because those guys are not really trying to, to talk about, they're trying to get their stuff and get out. So, I mean, what's the best way that people, if they're just starting, they're fairly green, they, they're looking at doing the rehab side of things on the residential end, how do they find these contractors? There's a lot of little elements, right? I want to give some gold nuggets. So the finalists, first of all, you know, I tell people eight to 10 contractors, depending on the task and the price point is what you want on that list. You need a longer list than you think you need. The traditional three or four people, it doesn't work, right? In the online world with construction being as busy as it is, if you have three or four people on your list, you move to the next phase, you're not going to be where you want to be. If they're not on your final list, they won't be on your higher list. So finalist is important. The way to do that typically is to start with your like power base. So if I were starting out, I'd ask my friends, my family, anybody I knew, say, hey, I just purchased this property, this investment, this home, right? I want to do some home improvement. Have you had any contractors do X, Y, Z type of work on your home. Now, this is where I see people make a mistake is they're not specific about the type of work they're getting done, 
right? Is it a remodel? Is it a repair? You have to use the right word and classify the right service. Um, I've had so many people that need restoration going around calling for repairs, right? Big difference with that small subtlety, a remodel versus a renovation, right? Scale is another factor. So we talk about in the book how to qualify your service. But assuming you've done that, you start with your power base, number one, ask friends and family, but make sure it's the right service. I had a, an example of somebody who asked their friend for a uh, flooring contractor because they wanted to put in hardwood and this person did laminate, got all screwed up, but they didn't qualify the exact service, right? So be really, really careful there. Next thing you got to do is head on to the internet and look for that specific service, blank, blank near me, you know, because locale is important, right? You want somebody local because a lot of the big companies spend a lot of money on ads and they're blasting at 50, 60, 70 mile radiuses to encompass big areas. So when you do the near me, you pull up the Google Maps. Um, so you can't buy your way into that map section that you see when you search a company. That's where you're, that's based off where your primary location is for your office. So when you do near me or in my city, you're more likely to get local contractors. So that's how you do that. And then there's all these third party sites like Home Advisor, Angie's List, House, and we talk about in the book how to read reviews. A lot of people look at it superficially, got a hundred five-star reviews. Great. I'm calling them. Don't want to do that. You want to sort through the reviews and make sure that those reviews match your service. It's a lot of people. Contractors like are like the restaurant where you're like, you serve Chinese food and Italian food and hamburgers in the restaurant world. That wouldn't make sense. But in contracting, we expect contractors. It's not weird to have a contractor say they do everything. But in the real world, it doesn't always make sense. So looking through those reviews, you'll find services that maybe you're thinking of hiring for that happen to be the one out of 50 bad reviews. So it's important to skim through those reviews. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So one, one thing, let me ask this. So let's yeah. say that someone is fairly new to rehabbing, but they have a little bit of construction experience and they know the difference in a two by four and a two by 12. Mm -hmm. And so do you recommend that they they sub out trades or that they hire a GC to, to go in and manage that. And so they're managing one person. I always say this, you want to find the right GC general contractor, consumer complaints. So, so 2019 consumer complaints, top complaint was home improvement, top industry, general contracting. It's because there's what I call paper contractor. It's these guys and gals that get licensed. It's not super hard to do. They own a pickup truck. They don't own a shovel and they get a nice shirt and they're a general contractor. So it is the heart. Like when I wrote this book, I was like, literally, I was thinking in my head about general contractors because it's so hard to vet them. So I always say finding the right GC, you'll never, ever make up for that by doing it on your own because they have leverage. If you're remodeling a home, right? And you have a plumber and they're doing your bathroom and, you know, maybe your kitchen, right? That plumbing scope isn't very big. Right. So you, if you hire that plumber individually, you've got very little leverage. However, if the GC hires that plumber and it's his or her plumber, he goes, look, you need to make Mr. and Mrs. Jones happy because if you don't, you're never going to see another one of my remodels again. Right. There's a relationship there. So it's with the right GC. You have the right relationships. You have the right leverage. It's hard to create that with a bunch of small jobs that you do directly. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's go to the vetting side of things. So how do we, we have a list of 10 GCs that we feel like we got recommended, they have good reviews, they're local, that kind of thing. So take us through the process of how do we vet these people? Yeah. Vetting the, the quick overview is you want to think of it like you're crossing people off the list. So it starts from when you book the appointment. So 
what I like to do is, and with GCs, it's important to know the split. So there's owner operator and there's divisional. Owner operator means the person you call to schedule the appointment is the person showing up on the appointment. Divisional means you're calling the office and they're sending you to meet XYZ, which might be the owner or it might be a salesperson. We got to know the split because that dictates how we evaluate them, right? So we call up and we go to schedule our appointment. I like to ask what services they specialize in first before you say anything. Hi, I live in so-and-so. I was doing some research online. Can you tell me a little bit about your company? What are you best at? What do you do the most of, right? You start interviewing them before you tell them your service. Well, what are you looking for? Never mind that, right? And say it a little more friendly, obviously, but no, no, I want to know, you know, what, what do you enjoy most? I like to see consistencies between the person who's talking to you on the phone when you're taking notes and the person you meet out in the field. I like to see that they both say the same thing. If there's incongruencies, I call that a yellow flag. So that's the first step when you're talking to them. The next thing you want to look for is I think there's some confusion around how we evaluate the person who shows up on the job. If it's owner operator, meaning that's the person who owns the business, answered the phone and is going to be supervising the work, they need to know everything. Like they need to know off the top of their head. Like what one of my favorite questions to ask is how might this quote expand? How might the work expand? Give me a few examples here. Worst case scenario. My favorite question, right? Because you can test whether or not they're willing to give away some of the change orders they might have. So if it's owner operator, they better have quick, serious answers. If it's a salesperson, right, they might not have all the answers. I've seen great companies and I've had a, a friend of mine did this amazing company. They had a new salesperson, right? Training, just got out of training. My friend calls me up. He's like, Matt, I need you to look at this quote. I, I, this guy didn't know anything. And I'm like, well, tell me about it. We're talking, find out it's a new salesperson. So know whether or not it's owner operator or divisional and how to rate that criteria. So that's kind of high level overview on vet. Okay, cool. And so we vet, we feel pretty comfortable and it's like, okay, we've chosen this person to manage this. And so talk about the hiring side because we've hired a lot of people, frankly, where there's no contract and that's probably a, a terrible idea, but they came from really strong referrals and that kind of thing. So we felt a little bit better about it, but tell us like, do you have to have a contract? Is that an absolute must? And what do you need to see in that? And what should you not see in that? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about is the North star approach. So there's a lot of good contractors that get leery when homeowners are like, Oh, one other quick note, when you're vetting, never tell a contractor to sharpen their pencil. That's one of the things where, where just being on the other side of the fence, I've seen it on both ways. A lot of homeowners are like, well, I'm going to tell them to sharpen their pencil. One quick thing on the vet that I find is super helpful is to let them know that there's an investment here and what scale. So saying, look, this part of the job I really need to do is affordable as possible because I need to do X, Y, and Z. You know, what are the, like, talk about it. What are the options? A lot of people say, give me your best price, sharpen your pencil. I've got other work. We hear that a thousand times. It doesn't move the needle, but if you create a good relationship and you're honest, contractors will go out of their way to say, well, you know, we could save on this, this, this. So that's just one little gold nugget, but yeah, if, and let's talk about the negotiation side, because that's something I kind of skipped over. Do you recommend always negotiating or is it something like on the front end with somebody that you want to build the relationship with maybe on the front end? It's like, look, I'm going to let you make a little bit more on this one and then we'll build the relationship. And then we have these other properties at that point, we'll renegotiate because I've had situations where I've had contractors like go two hours away from me and I'm like, they're going to make more on that deal. I'm okay with that. I'm doing okay on the deal. I want to make sure that they're happy. And so we're a little bit more amiable on that side than I am on something that's like, 
this is in your backyard. I know what the cost should be. And we're a little bit more stringent on that. So do you recommend negotiating or is that something on the front end? Maybe we want to just build the relationship and negotiate later. I like to be upfront about it. Right. I like to say, look, you know, this is my first and I don't, my approach that I talk about in the book is to be really open. Right. And I think if you do that and you're fair and you're humble and you build the right relationship, it'll pay dividends. So look, this is my first investment. You know, I'm going to move slow and make the right decisions, but I want to make sure that, you know, that we're fair with each other. I'm not a negotiator. Just give me your most fair price up front, you know, and let's talk through this and, and understand what it is that you need and where your concerns are. But it's about asking where the scope can be increased or reduced, right? And then talking about change orders, asking where the scope might grow. So ripping apart a bathroom, if you ask a contractor, where can this grow? And he doesn't talk about mold, not your guy, right? Or gal. So you're looking for the, it's basically poking around to see if they have integrity, if they're willing to give away some of their most common, you know, change orders, right? Dry rot, mold in bathrooms and kitchens. I mean, th this is super common stuff, especially in investment homes. So, you know, that's what you're doing, but I don't think, you know, the negotiation thing we talked uh, before we started about margins. I mean, that a contractor's margins are typically 10 to 20%. So if they're slashing 20, 30, 40% off their price, it was like they marked it up 30, 40% to then bring it down. I like to see the contractor that's like, look, this is my best number. I'd love to work with you. That typically creates, because some clients feel good about the negotiation. Like I got them down 20%. I'm like, either he's doing the job at, at minus 10% or they had built that in. So. Yeah. And I've seen both. I've seen people like we were talking offline about uh, where, you know, I may pay, um, uh, let's say for for paint per foot, I'm paying roughly dollar fifty, including the material, which is pretty good. You know, so labor material dollar fifty, and so, but I've seen people paying double that. You know, and so there's a big, big difference in retail pricing and contractor pricing. So that makes a lot of sense. So it seems like the rubber really meets the road on the management side. And so I've had really, really good contractors that I've worked with for a long time. And I've had really, really bad ones where I like literally have to run them off the job and they are swearing at me that they're going to file a, a mechanics lien on the property for the work that they didn't do, you know? So what's best management practices? I mean, obviously we want to have a long-term relationship with people that, that works on both sides, but at the same time, it, there's a, a little bit of, uh, you know, they have their agenda and we have our agenda and it competes just a little bit. So what's the best way to like walk that tightrope? Yeah. So again, I'm a simple guy, right? So I created a system. It's called the three and a half S's. You look at safety, schedule, standards, and the half S is the dollar sign. So okay, that's the best cool. thing I like that. So, so the three and a half S's, your safety is, are things going to be accessible? If they're ripping up the floor in the bathroom, you know, do you just have, uh, you know, is the floor exposed, right? You want to talk about elements of access and safety if you're living in the home, right? Can I get in and out of my front door? Where are you staging your materials? Standards is cleanliness. Are they? Are you okay with them smoking cigarettes on the job? Where do they put their trash? You know, if it's a new house and it's just painted, can they lean tools up against it? If you just redid your lawn, can they put materials on your lawn? Thinking a little bit about your unique standards, right? If they're late, is that a problem, right? Really got to get honest with yourself about this. And then, so we said safety, schedule, is where typically the North Star is the, an approach I talk about in the book. It's having everything in writing. So many people fall short on the area of, oh, we had a conversation about this. That conversation doesn't exist. It's not on paper. So like when I talk about schedules, you need one of two things, either in the contract or 
more preferred, have them email you a rough timeline. Say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to working with you. Before I sign this agreement, can you send me a rough outline of this schedule? You know, your best guess at a schedule? Because you need things to point to. That's why I call it the North Star. You can look up and point at it. If you can't point to something, there's friction, there's arguments, there's, you know, tension. But if you just point and say, hey, wait a minute, you said drywall is going to be a week, week and a half. We're a week in and you haven't even started. Like, we got to nail this down. What's going on here, right? But you can point to it versus the conversation of, well, hey, you know, I remember, and he goes, no, I didn't. I told you three weeks. What are you talking about? You're arguing before you even start. Yeah, that's 100% right. And guys, keep in mind, there are some things that are just completely out of these people's control. So if you're doing an exterior paint job and it's rained for two weeks, that's hardly their fault. You know, so, I mean, we used to do, I used to work for a builder back in college. And so, you know, we would have delays in the fall or the spring because of rain. It's like, look, you know, if we can't grade a lot or we can't put a footer in, like we just can't do it, you know? So that, that's 100% fair. Let's talk about draws because this seems to be one of the, the main conf- conflicts uh, on jobs that I've seen. I was talking to a buddy of mine. He's actually renovating his house right now to sell it because they have something else that they bought. And so he's taking an existing unfinished bonus room and he's finishing it out. So, you know, basic... Uh, couple circuits, drywall, flooring, that kind of thing. Really easy. But he had a painter that was there and he asked for a check the first day by noon. And I was like, well, that's pretty common. I actually literally had one of my painters one time ask for three checks in one day. And I'm like, chubby, I can't give you a check every three hours, man. Like it's not my job to stand here and like write you checks as you go through three more square feet of paint. You know what I mean? So what's a a best practice? Do you think like a once a week draw or like a 50% completion? And what's the best way to not get overdrawn? Because I've personally made that mistake where I've given too much cash and then they don't want to come back. Yeah. So the draws, we want to do a couple of things. We want to, we want to make sure that we're tying it to, first of all, if there's inspections, we want to tie it to after the inspection. So first thing we want to look at is, is there a permit or is there not? If there's a permit, we want to make sure that it's not when the footing is dug and rebar is installed, it's after the rebar inspection you know, or framing inspection, right? Because I don't want the contractor telling me, hey, it's good. I want the inspector to tell me it's good and then I'll give the money. So we want to build it around inspections. I'm not a huge fan of deposits unless there's a special material or there's some permit that needs to be applied for. And those are usually smaller amounts. So if you're doing like, uh, I know a guy, for example, a friend of mine owns a vinyl company. There's special order vinyl that he has. So he takes deposits up front because it has to go to his warehouse. He owns it non-refundable. So that's okay. He submits the invoice for that material and it's broken out before you sign the agreement. So he says, you know, it's $3,000 custom vinyl to be paid upon signature. So clarity around special order materials, but the 10% before I start, no permit, I don't recommend that in, you know, in the book. And then when you break out payments, I like them to be, because I always look at the worst case scenario and work backwards. Worst case scenario is you either have your money taken or you end up in court. And what the court cares about is that there's a very clear benchmark for your payment. So you want to do it as clear and concise as possible. Like you don't want to have a payment that says, you know, paint walls right? Because that might be a primer coat on the walls. He goes, ah, I painted them. And you're like, well, you didn't do the finish coat. He's like, I know, but I want my money. <laughs> so you want to get the payments as clear as possible. And the duration of the job matters. I like weekly draws on things that take more than a month or two. Anything less than that, I like to break it up into four or five payments. And I like to work that around benchmarks in the contract. Ideally, those that are clear, concise, or have permits. 
Very cool. So it sounds like there's a lot to this. Where's the biggest mistake that you see uh, in this process? What's the biggest mistake that people make? There's two of them. One of them is rushing the find phase and just calling people, right? Like if it's not on your find list, it's not on your hire list. So, you know, really the process is flipped. So taking the time to really look through reviews, really build out a big list that makes sense is one area. The second area is rushing to sign the agreement. I have a thing called the friend test, which I think is awesome for people who are starting out. And that's what you do is you take the agreement the contractor gives you and you give it to a friend who has no construction experience. And you say, I need you to read this. And I want you in your own words to explain back to me what's happening. And if they can't do it off of that agreement, I can tell you right now, if that goes to court or there's an issue, you're going to have a problem. So it exposes those silly little things where, you know, you're like, well, oh, they go, well, where's the, you know, the, they'll say remodel room. And you'll be like, the friend will be like, what room? And you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, it's my second bedroom. Good point. Like all those little things that you wouldn't think of when you do the friend test, you'll find those um, and you can amend the agreement. So rushing to sign the agreement and not spending enough time on the fine list. Very cool. Offline, we were talking about bigger construction jobs. And, you know, so I'm based out of Nashville, Tennessee. There's a lot of big construction going on. Uh, I think the last time I counted, which has been a, a few months ago, but there might have been like 22 or 23 cranes, you know, in the city that I could find. And, you know, there's more than that. So just a lot going on. And then I look at, they built a JW Marriott not too long ago. And I don't know how big this thing was, but it was big, you know, and I was there whenever they they dug the footers and just like how far deep that mid-rise went. And I was like, man, this is amazing. But then I think about the cost side of things. And I'm thinking, there's somebody out there that looks at this blueprint that and all these intricacies and all these finishes and says, yes, I know what that cost. And this is the time frame, And I know how to build that, which is just blows my mind. Okay. And I know that you've worked on some bigger jobs for you and your family. And then you've worked on some bigger jobs for other companies. I mean, it has to be either one thing that people are so segmented and they have the process down so much that they really do know within five to 10% what that darn thing costs, or they, they have to like over budget 40% and hope that they're within a Wrigley field correct about this thing. So what's been your experience on that? Uh, on bigger jobs or in the, the smaller projects? Uh, on the big commercial stuff. Yeah, on the big commercial stuff, it's actually easier to bid because you have such big economies of scale. So you make up so much inefficiency. So on a smaller job in the residential sector, for example, if you're doing, you know, 30 linear feet of foundation stem wall, you know, if you're off, it's hard to make that up. But if you're on a commercial job where, you know, you've got caissons or peers going in the ground and you have a big scope, you can actually make up efficiencies. It's like being in a race, right? And the race is really long and you're like, well, I got off to a bad start, but I have this long runway to make it back up, get things back on track, figure out what I did. But if your runway is really short, you know, if you're running a race and it's 10 feet and the first six feet, you're like a little off. It's hard to make that up. So the commercial stuff's a little bit easier in that regard, I find, where if you do make a small mistake or even a moderately sized mistake, you can you have room and runway to make it up. That's really amazing and completely opposite of what I ever would have thought. So effectively, it may be easier for you guys to budget a $10 million job than a $100,000 job. Absolutely, because square foot and linear pricing, if you have a really small job, your mobilization, your setup, and your cleanup, let's say this job is two days and it takes you two hours to set up, two hours to clean up, and you got to go to the supply house. You've got six hours out of a two hour job just in your setup fees. 
yeah. and clean up. So it, percentage wise, that makes a big difference. If that job's 300 days long, your one day setup and your one day cleanup doesn't even touch the budget. So you have to be much more precise on the smaller stuff. That makes a lot of sense. So Matt, tell us about the book and how other people can find out more about you. Yeah. So uh, the book is The Undercover Contractor, How to Not Get Screwed by Your Contractor. Um, you can head on over to theundercovercontractor.com and uh, everything's there. All the social, the book is going to be out in about a month. So you can get on a pre-order list for that. Cool. Very cool. Uh, I think we're definitely going to get that for uh, our apprentice group because what you talk about, man, just makes so much sense and it's so valuable. I mean, there's so much loss through bad management of, of contractors. And so if we can get this process down and really have it streamlined, then we're going to be a lot more successful. Matt, appreciate you being with us so much, man. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.